0: All right, well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning. We are actually going to take a step outside of Romans eight this morning, and our, uh, it's going to be related to the series we 're doing. it's going to connect to what we did last week, but we're going to take a step outside of Romans, and this morning we 're going to look at John 3:16 through 18. I invite you to turn there to John chapter 3. One of the most familiar and beloved passages of Scripture. John chapter 3. I invite you to stand with me as we read together Holy Scripture. This is God's holy word for us, His people. John 3, 16 to 18. God's word says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son... That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is God's holy word. Father, we ask that you would bless now the reading and especially the preaching of your scriptures. Send your Holy Spirit from heaven to do what only he can do, to take blind eyes and open them to see the truth, to take your word and plant it deep in our hearts that it might bear fruit in our lives today and in the coming week. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we have been studying some of the foundational biblical truths that were recovered during the Protestant Reformation. Truths that we've been looking at in our series, our firm foundation. Some of these include such important doctrines as salvation by grace alone, justification by faith alone, And last week we looked at the all-sufficient atoning death of Jesus Christ alone. Now today, we are celebrating, we are commemorating the great work of God in the 16th century as He used the Reformers and their churches and the congregations that they served to restore biblical Christianity, to restore the one true gospel of Scripture And to restore the purity of public worship. All these had been eclipsed and obscured by the errors, falsehoods, and superstitions of Rome. And God raised up a generation of men and women who gave their lives, body and soul, to bring the church away from the Pope, away. From Rome and back to the only true head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, we celebrate. Now, last week, we looked at Romans 8.32, and we learned that the cross is the keystone. The keystone of the golden arch of Romans 8.30, and it's the keystone of our Christian lives. We saw that the essence of the atonement is this. It is a penal substitutionary atonement. Remember that? If I gave a quiz, would you have remembered that? (laughs) Penal substitutionary atonement. Which means simply this. On the cross, Jesus paid our penalty in our place to make us right with God. We also saw that the extent of the atonement is limited to God's elect. And that, we said, is called the doctrine of limited atonement. It's called particular redemption because the purpose of the atonement is to save all of God's people from their sins. It is not intended to save the non-elect. Which means Jesus did not pay their penalty in their place. The reason is simple. If Jesus paid their penalty in their place, then all their sins have been paid for. That means they have nothing left to pay for. Even their unbelief would have been paid for. And therefore, their unbelief couldn't have kept them out of heaven. It's called double jeopardy. Right? Your sins aren't punished in Christ and in you. Once the sins are punished, once the penalty's paid, there's no more penalty left. If Jesus had paid the penalty of every human being who's ever lived, then every human being who's ever lived would be saved. Everyone that Jesus died for will be saved. God chose the elect and He predestined them to be saved by Jesus. And since Jesus is a perfect Savior, He never fails. His blood does not fail. Now we saw that last week. And this morning, I want to take a step back from Romans 8. And see how the doctrine of a limited atonement fits with other passages of Scripture that, at first glance, seem to teach the exact opposite. I said last week, if we had time, we could go through all the different verses that have to be accounted for, that sound like they're saying something different, and see how all of Scripture is consistent and harmonious, how it all connects. We didn't have time last week, so I decided let's do it this week. I got a timer. I just got here. <laughs> Let's take a step back and see if we can answer some of these questions and resolve some of this. And I decided, now, we can't look at every text. We, the series would be never-ending. But what we can do is take the classic text, John 3, 16. God so loved the world. Come on, Calvinists. Don't you read your Bible? It's right there, black ink on a white page. Did, do you see it? So let's deal with it. Today, we're going to look at John 3, 16 through 18. And what we want to do is to interpret this passage honestly. Let's be perfectly honest and fair and interpret it accurately in its own context. Get what it's saying. Don't play around with it. Don't twist it. Just take it. Analyze it, look at it in context, see what it says. And then, as we do that, we need to ask ourselves, how does this legitimately, honestly, fairly, how does this fit with limited atonement? From Romans 8.32. So I want you to see three things as we do this. These are our three points. Number one, we're going to see in the passage the Savior's objective. Second, The sinner's opportunity. And third, the sincerest offer. The offer of the gospel. So, let's begin by looking at John 3.16. Sometimes a verse can be so familiar that we actually miss what it really says. Sometimes we can just quote it because we've known it since we were kids. And you can rattle it off And we think we know exactly what it says, but if we just stop a minute, we might find a surprise hidden in plain sight right in the middle of John 3.16. So let's get there. John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. What we want to know as we look at this verse is, what is the Savior's objective in this text? What's the purpose? What's the intention of God in John 3.16? Let's look at the text very closely. Notice four things about John 3.16. First, it says in no uncertain terms that God loves the world. It just says it, for God so loved the world. And that means as Presbyterians, as Reformed Christians, as Calvinists who take great pride in our theological precision, who go to seminary for nine years to learn about this stuff, we should never be afraid to use the words that the Holy Spirit uses in the Bible. So if the, if the Holy Spirit doesn't mind saying, God so loved the world, we shouldn't either. We should say it and not qualify it with all sorts of yeah buts. We should just say it. God loves the world. That is a biblical sentence. It's a biblical thing to say. Alright, number two. Check out this little word, so. So. God so loved the world. Now, automatically, it's very unfortunate that you don't all know Greek. (laughs) Because in English, you can see it in English, it just takes a second to think about it. But in English, what we almost always just automatically think, and we've probably been told this a bunch too, is that it means God loved the world so much (laughs) So much. He so loved the world, right? It's supposed to be like an emotional word. He so much loved the world. But in Greek, it's crystal clear. That's not what it means. It is the word in Greek that means thus. For God thus loved the world. It means in this manner. Or in such a way. John is saying this is how God loved the world. Not the depth of his love. You can infer the depth of his love because he gave his son. That means it must be a great love. But that's not what the word so means all by itself. John is not saying it's how much God loved the world. But in what way did God love the world? This is... This is the loving thing that God has done for the world. That's what John's getting at. Here is how God expresses and demonstrates his love for the world. He thus loves the world. He loves in this way, in such a way. That's number two. Number three. Okay. If God thus loved the world, how thus did he do it? What's the way? How has God loved the world? Well, it says very clearly, He gives His Son to the world. It says, He so loved the world that He gave. Now remember, back in Romans 8.32, there was this language of, He did not spare His own Son, but He gave Him up for us all. Now, it's a different Greek word. In Romans 8.32, gave him up means delivered him over for judicial sentencing. Handed him over to the court to be judged. Here, it's not that word at all. Here the word is, he gave a gift. It's the word for a present. You give someone something. This is what it is. He so loved the world that he gave this gift to the world. He gave to this world his only Son. And the giving here clearly refers to the cross. Just look one verse earlier. Two verses, John 3, 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now that's referring back to the story where God sends a plague of deadly, venomous serpents among the camp of the Israelites to punish them for their sin. And they were biting the Israelites when they were getting sick. They were being infected with the venom and they were dying. And so to stop the plague, God tells Moses, take a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and lift it up in the wilderness and walk throughout the camp. And whoever looks to the pole, whoever looks upon that serpent who's lifted up, will be healed and spared. It's a sign. It's a sign from God of His mercy. Look upon the serpent. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness for the healing of the people, so must the Son of Man, that's Jesus, be lifted up. And what pole was He lifted up on? He was lifted up upon the cross And verse 15 says, the reason He was lifted up was that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. So this is the crucifixion, the giving of the Son upon the pole, upon the tree. He's lifted up on the cross. This is God's gift to the world. He gives His Son to the world on the cross. Number four. God seeks to rescue those who are perishing in John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life this is a saving mission he sends the son upon the cross to rescue those who are about to perish and to pull them back from the brink and to give them instead eternal life These are the four things that we see right off the bat in John 3.16. God so loves the world by giving His Son on the cross to rescue the perishing and to give them eternal life. Now, at first glance, that does not sound like limited atonement. Let's just be honest, it doesn't sound like it. But notice one more detail. It's right there. One more detail in the text. Notice this word. It occurs twice, but it's two different Greek words. Verse 16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and this second word, that. Now, that second word, that, is super crucial. He so loved the world. He gave his son that. This little Greek word introduces the purpose. That little Greek word tells you the purpose, the objective, the intention of God the Father in giving the son on the cross. And what is the objective? What is the purpose or intention? The text says the intention is whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. A more little, literal translation would be this so that every believer will not perish. I mean, have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed the particularity that's right in the middle of John 3:16? It says, "God only intends the death of his son to save believers." God loves the world. He gives his son so that all believers may be saved. Which means the cross is not meant to save someone who doesn't believe. Unbelievers are excluded. Only believers are the ones that God intends to save. No unbeliever has eternal life. Unbelievers are still perishing. And they will all perish unless they believe. The salvation of John 3:16 is only intended to save a believer. So, what is the Savior's objective? Let's summarize it. His objective, God's objective, in the death of Christ is the eternal salvation only of believers. And who are the only ones who come to saving faith? Who are the only people who ever truly savingly believe? Those who are called. The elect. That's who Jesus died for in John 3.16. Point two. That's the Savior's objective. What's the sinner's opportunity? What opportunity does a sinner have... If that's who Jesus died for in John 3.16. Now we come to verse 17. Scripture says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that, that's the same Greek word I was just harping on, in order that the world might be saved through Him. Okay, so there's more to explain. If it is truly the Savior's objective, what we just looked at, what does it mean that God loves the world? What could 3.17 mean when it says He sent the Son to save the world? Who's the world? And what does it mean that God sends the Son to save that world? Okay, who's the world then? God so loved the world, he sent his son to save the world. Who's the world? The world means all nations. Not just the nation of Israel. We've got to remember that this is written from the perspective of Jewish Christians. All of the first Christians were Jewish. Jewish. And soon after, Gentiles, non-Jews, began to believe and to come into the church. And they had to wrestle with what place do Gentiles have in a Jewish church, in Jewish Christianity. One of the things that had to be resolved was, obviously then, salvation isn't just meant for Israel. It's meant for all the non-Jews. And so that's the perspective this language is coming from. The Apostle John, a follower of Jesus, a Jewish disciple, is saying, look, salvation isn't just meant for the nation of Israel. It's meant for the world. Which means it's meant for every nation. Not just mine. Not just Israel. It means all people without distinction. Not just the Jewish people. Every people group, every land, every race, every ethnicity, every background, every language group, all the world, not just Israel. There are no exceptions among the nations. All of the Gentiles in all the world are included. Every people group without distinction. It's all Nations, Or as our call to worship said, it's the ends of the earth that are included, not just Israel. Jesus isn't just Israel's Savior. He isn't just the Savior of Jews. He is the Savior of the world. This is what it means that God loves the world. He has sent His Son on a saving mission to sacrifice Himself upon the cross And to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. To all peoples of the world. And there are a couple other texts I want to read you. That show this. Later in the gospel of John. In John 11. The high priest that year is. In the year Jesus dies. The high priest. His name is Caiaphas. And Caiaphas is trying to convince his fellow Jewish leaders, we've got to get rid of this guy. We've got to take Jesus out. They're plotting his death. They're plotting his crucifixion. And this is what John eleven forty nine 49 says. But one of them, one of these Jewish leaders named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, says to his fellow Jewish leaders, listen to what he says. He says, you know nothing at all. They're debating this, right? Should we get Jesus? How do we get Jesus? He says, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you... That one man should die for the people of Israel... Not that the whole nation should perish. Better for one Jew to die than for the whole nation to be destroyed. That's what Caiaphas says. And then John adds this note. Caiaphas did not say this of his own accord... But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation of Israel, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Jesus dies not for the nation of Israel only, but for every child of God who is scattered abroad throughout the world to the ends of the earth. Not just Jews, but all the Gentile people groups are included. And then Revelation 5.9 says this. This is a picture of the saints in glory in heaven worshiping the risen Jesus. And listen to what they say. Revelation 5.9, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, singing to Jesus, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation." That's the song they sing in heaven. The song of the redeemed. You, Lord Jesus, died. You were put to death. You were slain. And with your blood, you ransomed people from every Gentile nation, every people group. It says every tribe, language, people, and nation. John is trying to be as exhaustive as he can to say no people group was excluded. Every Gentile nation is included, no exceptions, no exclusions. God gave His Son so that every believer in the world will be saved. No exceptions, no exclusions. Any believer anywhere is included, not just Jews. Every sinner who hears the gospel... Therefore, has an opportunity to believe the good news and have eternal life. Because salvation is for every believer, no matter who they are, no matter where they're from. That's the world that Jesus came to save in John 3.17. Final point this morning. We've seen the Savior's objective. It's to save everyone who believes. We've seen the sinner's opportunity. You can't say, I must not be included. Because the gospel is for every creature under heaven. The gospel message goes to all peoples, all nations, everywhere. And the gospel offer is made. And now we come to point three is the offer sincere is this offer of eternal life by faith alone sincere that's point 3 the sincerest offer let's look at verse 18 john 3:18 whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed In the name of the only Son of God. Verse 18 opens with this statement. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. And that statement implies this wonderful gospel promise. If you will believe in Jesus Christ, you will not be condemned. That is gospel promise. Announcement That is gospel good news for every individual human being on this planet. You can look him in the eye, you can look her in the face, and you can say, if you, dear brother, dear sister, dear friend, dear child, dear family member, if you would just believe in Jesus Christ, you, individually, you will not be condemned. This is the promise of the gospel. And it is truly, it is freely, it is genuinely, it is absolutely, sincerely offered to every human being. And it's always true. God will never not keep His promise. Jesus says in John 6, 37, All that the Father gives to me, they will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast them out. Ever you come to Jesus, he'll never say, nope, sorry, you're on the wrong list. You're on the non-elect list. Too bad. Heaven locked. Off to hell. No. If you come to Jesus, you'll never be turned away. Some people have this idea, and I've heard this, that... Some people will go to heaven begging and kicking and screaming to to not go to heaven. But God says, nope, too bad, I chose you. Come on, into heaven. And then you have all these people who are like, God, please let me into heaven. I don't want to go to hell. Please save me, Jesus. Nope, on the wrong list. Here we go. Too bad. And if that's what you hear when you hear about election and predestination and all this, that's Totally bogus. Because that's not what's happening at all. Everybody who says, Jesus, please save me. They always get the answer, yes. If you will just believe in Jesus, you will not be condemned. That is gospel good news for every person. And it's always true. It's always sincerely meant Salvation is only intended for believers. The salvation promised to believers is announced to everyone without exception. All sinners, therefore, are offered the promise and they're invited to become believers. And everyone who believes receives the promise. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. That's how a gospel presentation always works. Nobody's excluded from that presentation. Now there are some who say, if God only intends to save believers, and if it's up to God who becomes a believer, then there's no way he could sincerely offer salvation to the non-elected. It's got some punch to it. That argument's got some teeth. But is it right? Those people are wrong for a couple reasons. And one of them is, it's not a flattering reason. One reason is they're trying to be wiser than God. Because that's just not the conclusion Scripture draws on this topic. They're trying to take part of what Scripture says and and go, if that's true, then this other part of what Scripture says can't be true. So that part must not be true. Only this part must be true. We're not allowed to do that with the Bible. We're not allowed to pit it against each other and say, either this part's true or that part's true. They can't both be true. We're trying to be wiser than God. And we do it too about other topics. Opponents of this doctrine do it on this topic. The promise implied in John 3.18 is always objectively true, and God means every word of it. If you believe, you will be saved. That's always true, and it's always true for everyone. Elect or not, it's a true and genuine promise. This is massively important, this next point. This is massively important. Election never excludes anybody from being a believer. Election never excludes anybody from being saved. Election guarantees that some will believe. Election guarantees that some will be saved, but it never prevents anybody else from being saved. That's a different doctrine. Election is just, here are all these lost sinners, and I am going to save my people whom I choose for myself. That does not exclude anybody from believing. We do the excluding ourselves. We do the excluding ourselves. I want to read you this quote. This is John Calvin, okay? You can't get more Calvinist (laughs) than John Calvin. So let's get it right out of the horse's mouth. This is Calvin in his commentary on Acts chapter 2, verse 21. It has the word whosoever in it. And Calvin grabs that word and he goes... Quote, "We must also note the universal word whosoever for god admitteth, god admits all men unto himself without exception and by this means he does invite them to salvation." He goes on, therefore, this is Calvin, okay? Just brace yourselves. Therefore, for as much as no man is excluded from calling upon God, the gate of salvation is set open unto all men, neither is there any other thing that keeps us back from entering in except our own unbelief. That's Calvinism. We do the excluding perfectly well all by ourselves. We don't need any help from God to be sinners and to be unbelievers. We're really good at that. Notice the second half of verse 18. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed. In Greek it's more like he's never believed. He's never come to believe in the name of the only Son of God. At the end of the chapter, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. There's the gospel. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We start off sinners. We come into this world condemned in sin under the wrath of God. And that's where we stay unless a miracle happens. Unless God rescues us. We exclude ourselves. Next verse, John three nineteen. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved darkness rather than light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And does not come to the light. Lest his deeds should be exposed. We exclude ourselves. And we will always go on excluding ourselves. Unless God in his rich powerful mercy and grace saves The election plucks us out of this rebellious, perishing, condemned world. Otherwise, nobody would be saved. Nobody would bow the knee to King Jesus. Friends, as we conclude this morning, we do not know who the elect are. We have no insight into who God has elected to be His own. And so we must obey the Great Commission. We don't try to be wiser than God. We are are called to obey the Scriptures, to believe what it says and do what it says. And the Scripture says God chooses His people and we have to go take the Gospel to all the nations so all His people can hear. We don't know who the elect are We must take this gospel to all peoples, all nations of the world, so that all of God's ransomed elect may be gathered together to worship the one true Lord and God, Jesus Christ. Calvinism is the beating heart of missions and evangelism and church planting. Some people say, well, if you believe that it's all settled by God, kind of what Bill was talking about, right? If it's all settled... Then why share the gospel? They're going to get saved anyway, so huh, let's sit back and eat chicken wings and watch football. I love eating chicken wings, but someone's got to tell the gospel to somebody. I'm doing a pretty good job of it right now, but you guys. <laughs> someone's got to go. Some, because the people have to hear. God uses means. He's predestined the end and the means to the end and calvinism is the beating heart of the great commission it's what puts iron in your spine and gives you the boldness and the courage to look the most vile god-hating sinner on the place on the face of the earth and to know if god's chosen him and predestined him to be saved you can look that hard-hearted god-hating sinner right in his face and tell him the gospel with love and compassion And you know if it's God's will, that sinner, he's coming to Christ. God's going to take that heart of stone and pluck it out and give him a heart of flesh. Because that's what he did for you. And he can do that for anybody. And he does it because he gives us the joy of getting to take part in his mission of saving all the ends of the earth. And you get the joy of knowing you led another person to the Savior. That you both get to bow at the foot of the cross together and worship Christ together. And that person will say, thank you, brother. Thank you, sister. And you will have that joy forever. That God used you. That God used you like He used the Reformers. To bring the gospel, the true gospel, to the ends of the earth we proclaim a powerful Savior. We believe in a powerful Savior and we believe in a perfect atonement for the ends of the earth, for this whole world that God loves. So go, speak, be used of the Lord, have boldness and courage, be proud to be Protestant, and go fearlessly and share this wonderful good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have indeed restored to us the gospel, that you have given us this life giving word, this life changing word. And because a perfect atonement has been offered, and because everyone for whom that atonement was made will come to faith, and we know they will come to faith because you will use us in no other way. You will use us to open our mouths and to have courage and to have love. And to sacrifice our comforts and convenience to tell someone else this good news and to have the joy of being used by you to either plant the seed, to water a seed that someone else has already planted, and God, please, if it's your will, to reap the harvest. Though fields are white unto harvest, Jesus said, send us, Lord, into your harvest to reap to be used by you to reap a harvest of souls and to see unbelievers around us in this town, in this area, in this community, in our families, at our jobs, to see them come and stand with us in this place. Send your gospel far and wide and call to yourself your holy bride. Use us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.